You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. verses 15 through 20 together. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow together as we open our time. Our Father, we pray today that You would teach us from Your Word. We believe that in this book is written all that is necessary for life and for godliness. And we pray that as a result of our time and study today and looking at Your Word, that You would instruct us. May this be done uh, clear, um, with much clarity and with much, much intensity. And may our eyes and hearts be open to your word to learn all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. In my third year at Bible college, we had a course uh, called Pastoral Ministries course. We affectionately referred to it as Pastoral Miseries course. And it was a required course for us to graduate from third year. You had to take Pastoral Ministries they had a different course that was required for the girls. It was Pastor's Wives 1301 or something like that. I forget what it was. But they didn't make the women go through the pastoral ministries course. And I have to confess to you, I didn't pay hardly any attention whatsoever through pastoral miseries because I was convinced that I would never be a pastor. So it seemed like a lot of effort to put into something that I would never end up using. And it was the same reason I didn't pay any attention in preaching class. Same reason. That's a whole lot of work for some guy to put in who's never ever going to preach in his whole life. So why pay attention to preaching class? So I did only, and some of you would be willing, able to guess that I didn't pay any attention in preaching class. Um, I did only as much work as was absolutely necessary in those two courses to keep my grade level, my GPA up to where it needed to be. I didn't want it dropping down. So I had other courses that were far more interesting to me. I put all my energy and attention into those courses. But pastoral miseries and preaching class were the two classes that I really didn't pay too much attention in or put too much effort into. I regret that now. So, teenagers, if you're on this side of ever going to college, do what they tell you to do. Take all of the courses that you can and pay attention to all of them equally because you never know what God's going to drop into your lap sometime in the future. So anyway, in one of the things, even though I didn't pay much attention to Pastoral Miseries class, one of the things that I do remember them saying specifically was we, we had a... We had a whole class where we talked about how to plan your preaching year. 
how to plan what you're going to preach on. And one of the things that they were uh, big on and instructed us constantly on was you should plan your preaching way in advance, up to a year in advance. You should sit down at the beginning of every year and plan all the series of messages that you're going to do. And you're going to do this at such and such a time of the year. And I've done that. That was one thing that I adopted um, in my own preaching ministry. And some of you know how I do that with the texts and even the titles of the messages, where I think I'm going to be preaching a long time in advance. There was something that they said, though, in planning your preaching for a whole year out. One thing they told us was you need to keep in mind several considerations when you're planning your preaching year. The first one is you need to plan to preach around holidays so that you have Christmas messages around Christmas time, resurrection messages around Easter time, and you need to take all of the holidays of the Christian year and plan messages for those holidays so that you're speaking a special message on Mother's Day and Father's Day and Memorial Day and Veterans Day and Thanksgiving and Easter and Groundhog Day and every other day that's on the calendar. You should plan your messages around all of those holidays. And if you've been here for a while, then you know that we're big into that here. We do that all the time. The second thing that they told us was keep your sermon series short. So if you're going to do a series on anything, it should be, and this is conventional wisdom even today, 8 to 12 weeks long at the most. At Absolute maximum, if you have to, 16 weeks. So if you're going to do a series through Ephesians or Romans or Acts or Philippians, no more than 16 weeks. Keep them short. And of course, you know that around here we try and do that too. We're big into that, keeping our series short. And they would say if you're going to do a big book like Romans or Acts and you have to go more than 16 weeks, then you should do 16 weeks and then break it up with like a 10-week series where you're doing something else, and then another 16-week series, and that way you can kind of have longer... But you got to break it up and like commercials on a television set. you got to keep people's attention constantly going like that because we like that flashy multimedia-type presentation. So that was their thing. Always make your series short. And you know that I'm absolutely committed, absolutely committed, to never preaching on one verse for more than 16 weeks. So I give you my absolute promise that I will never have a series on one verse that goes more than 16 weeks. The third thing that they told us to do, not only plan around holidays and keep your series short, but they said every year as a pastor or as an elder in your church, you should have a series dealing with stewardship. You should have a series on the subject of giving. Preferably three to four weeks. It's preferable that you have it at the same time every year. Some churches and pastors that I know, they do this every January. That's stewardship month because they've just approved the new budget and the new budget's fresh in everybody's mind and they've hashed about it and argued over it at the annual meeting. And so now is the time to preach on the responsibility of God's people to give. And so every year you should have a stewardship series, three or four weeks that you're talking about giving from some aspect or another. And of course, if you've been here for a while, then you know what? I didn't learn anything from that one either. I don't do any of those, actually. I don't do anything short. I don't do anything um, around holidays except for Christmas and Easter. And I don't do any giving series at any time during the course of the year. We don't do that every year. And I've actually had people ask me, why don't you do a series of messages on stewardship, on giving? Just do three or four weeks or six weeks on the subject of giving and do it once every year or two years. And my answer to that, well, first of all, most of the time, people who ask that question are people who are already giving. They're people who are already committed to giving of their finances to the Lord. So they don't need to be told that. They understand the joy of it. They understand the blessing of it. And they want everybody else in the congregation to understand that blessing and to experience that same joy as well. And my response to that question, why don't you do a a series on stewardship, is always really twofold. 
Number one, I'm convinced that if God's people are taught God's Word and they're instructed on how to rightly apply God's Word in every area of their life, they will give. And you won't need to tell them to give. You don't need to remind them to give. They're just going to give. And for those who are not giving and they're not faithful and regular and disciplined and and uh, sacrificial givers, no series of messages is going to change that. Because they're going to walk away at the end of Stewardship Month and they're going to have all of the list of excuses as to why they shouldn't be giving and they don't need to give and that doesn't apply to them. And they're already doing such and such with their money and that will be really good someday when I'm wealthy and I'm making more than six figures. They have all their excuses anyway. So a series on stewardship is not going to make any non-givers givers. And so I'm convinced that if you just stick to the systematic, faithful, diligent, disciplined, deep preaching of the Word of God, instructing people how to apply that truth in all areas of their life, that the overflow or the expression of an obedient life will be sacrificial giving every time. And if a person is not giving sacrificially, the answer is not trying to guilt them or make them give They've got other problems with obedience. It's not just giving. That's only one manifestation of a much deeper problem with obedience. Second of all, it's my conviction that as you go through the course of Scripture, if you just pick any book of the New Testament or the Old Testament, the subject of giving is going to come up at one point or another in the course of that book. And so over the course of the last 12 years, I've dealt with the subject of giving and stewardship from a lot of different angles and perspectives and First Timothy, we've done, done it in James, we've talked about it in Second Timothy, we have talked about it in uh, the book of Acts, and now here it comes up again in the book of Philippians. And so now we're dealing with the subject of stewardship and giving, but I want you to understand, it's not because we're behind in our budget as a church. We're dealing with this issue not because I need to or I have to, not because I'm trying to get a raise. We're dealing with it not because even we have a consecration Sunday coming up. We didn't plan this series of messages to prepare for Consecration Sunday. We actually planned Consecration Sunday to coincide with this series of messages at the end of the book of Philippians. And yes, we are nearing the end of the book of Philippians. And here's the good news. We'll be done with Philippians probably on or right after March 8th, Consecration Sunday. So, here we are in Philippians and we're dealing with the subject of giving. It comes up because the Apostle Paul, let me remind you of the background and what we just covered, the Apostle Paul is thanking the gift, the Philippians, for a gift that he received from their hands through Epaphroditus. Philippi, the Philippian congregation, knew Paul was in prison, knew he was in Rome. They took one of their most trusted servants, a man by the name of Epaphroditus, and they sent an offering from the church in the hands of Epaphroditus to Paul in Rome. And Epaphroditus' responsibility when he got into Rome was twofold. He was to deliver the gift to Paul, to provide for Paul's needs. And second, Epaphroditus was to stay in Philippi and minister to the Apostle Paul as long as Paul needed him. And now we read through the book of Philippians. We find out in chapter 2, Epaphroditus got sick. And now he was worried about the church in Philippi. And so Paul didn't need Epaphroditus anymore. He sends Epaphroditus back with the letter that you hold in your hands, known as Philippians. Sends Epaphroditus back with that letter. And at the end of that letter is a thank you for that gift that they had received. We started looking at that thank you in verse 10. You remember what Paul said? I rejoiced greatly when I received, when you revived your concern for me. Not that you didn't weren't concerned, but you lacked opportunity. Now at last I have received it, and I'm very grateful for it. But he didn't want the Philippians to think that their gift had rescued him from a condition of discontentment. And Paul wanted them to know, I'm not rejoicing and I'm not thanking you because I was discontent with my condition. I was more than content. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. So whether you had sent the gift or not, I wasn't discontent here with it. I was fine with my lack, fine with my need. Whatever the Lord brought me, I was content with that. 
So now we pick it up again in verse 14, and this is the final paragraph in the book of Philippians, the final major subject. Now let me give you an overview of verses 14 through 20, and I'll break it down and show you what, it was sort of an outline, that's what I'm getting at, an outline. In verse 14 through verse 16, the Apostle Paul describes giving as a personal involvement. Look at verse 14. 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. That was their personal involvement in Paul's ministry. In verse 17, he describes giving as a profitable investment. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. A profitable investment. Now, if that causes you to recoil for a minute, just wait till next week. We'll get to verse 17. And you'll see what I mean and what Paul means by profitable investment. Number 18, but I have received, in verse 18, and this is God's perspective on giving, I have received everything in full, having an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's God's perspective. Now look at God's promise in verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then God's praise in verse 20. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we get God's perspective, God's promise for givers, and then God's praise and how that works out. So today we're just going to be looking at verses 14 through 16, giving as a personal involvement. A personal involvement. And we're going to see three things. The gift that the Philippians had sent to the Apostle Paul was an expression of their fellowship with Paul, their faith in the gospel, and their faithfulness to God. Now let me give two disclaimers before we get into the the bulk of this message. Here's the first one. If this is your first or your second week here, I want you to understand, I'm not preaching on giving because we want your money and that that's something that we focus on a lot. We don't. We focus on it as it comes up in the passage of Scripture. However, we deal with it as we go through verse by verse through the books. So we're not singling this out. So if the, if the only Sunday you are familiar with is one's talking about being content and giving your money, don't misunderstand that. Second of all, I want everybody here to know something about myself and the other elders and the deacons as well. And that is that I have absolutely no idea who gives what in this church. No idea. I never see anybody's checks. I never count the offering. I have no idea what comes in week after week. I don't see the books on my computer. I don't see anybody's year-end financial statements. I don't see any of that. I have no idea if in the last 10 years you've given a dollar to this church or $100,000 to this church. I have no way of knowing that. I don't know. Jess doesn't know. Dave doesn't know. None of the deacons know. On top of that, I really don't care. It's not something I care to know, I guess I should say. I don't want to know it because it gives me two advantages. Number one, it removes from me and from Jess and from Dave, the other elders, it removes from us any temptation toward partiality. In dealing with a church discipline issue or in helping somebody or in confronting somebody on some issue in their life, it never can enter into our minds, well, that person's a big giver, and what if they respond poorly to this and, man, they hit the door and we're going to lose such and such. never enters into our mind. Partiality never even comes into the picture. You know why? We don't have a clue who gives what. and We don't want to know. Second, it allows me to be able to preach on the subject of giving without anybody in the congregation being able to say, he had me in mind. Which is arrogant if you think about it. Yeah, Jim spent 35, 40 hours this week preparing a message with me in mind. Right, like you're the whole center of my universe and everything I plan to say, I plan around you. Never works out that way at all. I can't, I don't, I can't have anybody in particular in mind. So if I say something that offends you or convicts you or you think, oh, he must have seen the gift I gave last week or the note on my check or whatever. 
I don't have a clue. Okay, so what I'm saying, I'm saying, and I would say this because this is what the text says, and I'm just going to teach my way through it. Nobody can possibly think that I've got you in mind or that I'm singling anybody's situation out in particular because I had no idea what anybody gives. And I love it that way. I love it that way. I've told other pastors, you need to get your nose out of the books and have no idea what anybody in the church gives. It's the way it should be done. So let's get into our outline. Beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Paul describes their gift or shows that their gift was an evidence of their personal involvement, an evidence of their fellowship with Paul. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. He tells him, you've done something good. In sending the gift, you have done well. It's a phrase that actually means to do something excellently. It was used of Jesus by the crowds after healing people in the crowds. In Mark 7, it says, he does all things well. It's the same phrase. It's used in 2 Peter chapter 1. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which we do well to take heed as a light that shines in the darkness. It's a phrase that describes something that's done with excellence, describes something that pleases God, describes something that is done in a well... We, do, we use the phrase well done. And it's the same idea. And Paul's describing the gift that they give, gave to him to support him as something that was well, it was excellent, it was good, it was good that you did this. Now I ask myself, why does the Apostle Paul tell them that they had done well? I think it's probably because this is the closest thing that actually comes to the words thank you in his thank you section. But he says you did something well. And I think it's possible that somebody who read verses 10 through verse 14 could come to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul, in his contentment, was actually... Wondering about the gift that they had sent. Let me put it this way from the Philippians perspective. Imagine that you'd sent Paul a gift and the letter you got back said, I want you to know whether you'd sent the gift or not. I was content with the condition I was in. It was all fine with me. I was happy with that. Whether it's abundance or, or um, abundance or poverty, I'm, I'm great with both of them. And you might say, whoa, maybe we shouldn't have sent the gift. I mean, does he not appreciate it? Was he fine without it? And this is the Apostle Paul's way of saying, no, it's a good thing that you sent the gift. You did well. He didn't want the Philippians to think that just because he was content, that the gift was either unnecessary or unappreciated. It was both. It was necessary and it was appreciated. So he says, you have done well in this. And you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And the word share with me is a word that we translate in the New Testament, koinonia. And it means a partaking in something or a sharing in something. It's also translated as fellowship. So the word used to share with me in my affliction is a word that comes from the koinonia family of words. And I know we did this way back in Philippians chapter 1. And so you're not going to remember this, but I do want to briefly remind you of what koinonia is. It's not just the shallow having of coffee and visiting that we do amongst ourselves that we call fellowship. I had coffee with them. That was fellowship. Well, having coffee with somebody and calling that fellowship is like pulling a cup of water out of the ocean and saying, this is the ocean. It's only a small part of the ocean, but the ocean's much deeper and much grander than that cup of water. It's the same thing with the idea of fellowship. You can have fellowship with somebody that you've never met because you can share with them in their affliction. You can share with them in their ministry. You can share with them in the gospel. So the fellowship that you enjoy is not just sitting down with people that you know and visiting or having a meal or having coffee. Fellowship goes far beyond that. It's much larger. It's much grander than that. It is participating with somebody in something. It was a business term in Paul's day. And it was a business term that applied, it was used to describe two people who would both have an active participation in a business venture together. They would both put up some money and they would both participate in the business and they would describe that as fellowshipping or partaking, koinonia together. They were partaking and sharing of something together. 
So what kind of fellowship or what kind of sharing does Paul have in mind? Flip back to chapter 1 real quick, verse 3. Sorry, verse 5. I want you to see how he uses the word twice. Because chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 is a parallel passage to the end of chapter 4. Chapter 1, verse 5. Let's look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation, that's the word fellowship, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. Partakers is the word for koinonia, fellowship. It's the same sort of word used at the end of chapter 4. You are sharing with me or partaking with me in my affliction. We partake or we share together in the gospel and in grace. And now I ask you, how had the Philippians shared Paul's affliction? How did they do that? It was through their gift. In sending their gift from Philippi to Rome, Paul viewed that as koinonia. He viewed that as fellowshipping together. And he says to them, you have partaken of my suffering. Why? They had shared his suffering by sharing his needs, by bearing his burdens, by being interested in him and sending him their finances. They had shared with Paul and partaken together of his affliction. Giving of their gift was a personal involvement. It was an evidence of their fellowship with Paul in his affliction and his suffering. Listen. Giving of our finances was never intended by God to be a detached endeavor. It was never intended by God to be something that we do in a detached manner. As if we sit back and we cut our check and we're not interested in what goes on and we send our money off to something. Instead, you know what giving is an expression of? It is an expression of the priorities of our hearts. Where your treasure is, what? That's where your heart will be. Where your heart is... That's where you will give your treasure as well. It works both ways. Before I started investing in mutual funds for my retirement several years ago, you think I ever paid attention to where the market was doing or what was going up or down? I didn't care. I wasn't interested in it whatsoever. The market is up. Oh, yippee. The market is down. Oh, yippee. Now I start sending money there every month, saving for my retirement. And when the market goes up or down, guess what? Oh, I'm online, I'm doing research, I'm looking at the graphs. All of a sudden, what? My heart is there. Why is my heart there? Because my money's there. And what you give your money to, that's where your heart will go. And wherever your heart is at, that's where you put your money. It's inevitable. It has to be. It was never intended to be anywhere, any way else. The heart is a thermometer, or the, sorry, our giving is the thermometer of our heart. You want to know what somebody's priorities are? Look at their checkbook. I read a story about a pastor who was called up by a lady in his congregation. She said, Pastor, we're having troubles in our marriage with some issues that we need to work through. We'd like to come and sit down and talk with you. And he said, that's fine. And he scheduled it. And then before he hung up the phone, he said to her, make sure when you come, you bring your checkbook. And she said, oh, Pastor, I didn't realize that you charged for counseling. He said, I didn't. I just want to look at your checkbook register because I can tell where your heart is at by looking at where you spend your money. That's the truth, friends. That's the truth. Look at your checkbook register. You tell where your treasure is. And that's the saddest part with most Christians who don't give. You know why it's sad? Because their heart is never enlarged beyond anything other than their own universe. Never beyond anything other than their own interests, their own entertainments, their own extravagance, their own comfort zone, their own things. That's where their heart is. That's where their money is. 
But you want to get out of the me fixation? Start giving. You want to get off of yourself? You want to break the hold of selfishness in your life? Start giving. You want to be involved in somebody else's life? In meeting somebody else's need? You want to have a universe that doesn't just have you at the center of it? Then start giving. And it's inevitable, wherever you give your treasure at, that's where your heart will go. Because it's a personal involvement. And when I give my money to something, all of a sudden my heart is there. And I want to know what's going on, and I want to know how it's being used, and I want to know how that money is being used to promote the gospel, and I'm interested in that. And the things that interest me are the things that I give my money to. Christians who don't support their local church or their home church with their finances are also Christians who just don't give a rip about the church, period. They can say that they love it, they can be there every week, but if they don't support it with their money, the reality is that the church could fold and they would be fine with that. They would stay home on Sunday mornings or they would find a new church. doesn't matter to them. The whole thing, the whole operation would fold up tomorrow and they wouldn't care. Why? Because their heart's not invested in it. But you know who would be upset by that? The people who, that is their treasure. That is something that they're giving toward. It was never intended by God to be a detached enterprise. It's something that when we invest our funds, whether it's in a church or supporting a missionary or supporting a another parachurch ministry, when we invest our funds in something, our heart is going into that. The, it has to because that's where our treasure is at. And wherever we put our treasure, that's where our heart is going to go. And wherever our heart is, that's where we're going to put our treasure. It's an inevitable law of life. It's a personal involvement. And it's a way of sharing in somebody's affliction. Now this brings up a question. Is it okay for Christians to give to non-Christian organizations? What if I want to give to the Leukemia Foundation? Or what if I want to give to the YMCA, or the local soup kitchen that's run by complete pagans just out of the generosity of their heart. What if I want to give to something like that? Is that all right? And my answer to that is, you have absolutely every freedom in the world to do that. If you want to give to a non-Christian organization, you have the freedom to do that. But not at the expense of giving to the Lord's work. And just don't for a moment think that there's an eternal reward for that. There's not. Don't think you're advancing the gospel. You're not. Don't think that that's anything that is going to uh, store up for you treasures in heaven. It's not. Only giving to the Lord does that. Now, if at the end of giving to the, your local church and giving to all of the ministries that are on your heart and giving to the Lord out of the abundance of your possessions, if at that time you still have all of this money to give and you want to give some to the Rotary Club, have at it. Have at it. I have no problems with that. But just don't think that your involvement in community activities that maybe do good for a few people has any bearing whatsoever on the gospel because it doesn't. You know one of the tragedies of modern evangelicalism? One of the tragedies of modern evangelicalism, and I know I'm going to make somebody mad by saying this, is the millions of dollars that Christians give to political causes. An utter tragedy. And they do that oftentimes to the, at the expense of giving to the church, or giving to God's causes, or supporting missionaries. Now, if you're supporting missionaries, you're supporting God's causes, and you still want to send $50 a month to the RNC, have at her. I don't have a problem with that. You want to give to the NRA? Have at her. I don't have a problem with that. Not at all. But just don't think that that's the same as gospel work. The millions of dollars that evangelicals commit to trying to influence legislation, to try and get people elected, what an utter, total, tragic disappointment, that waste of time that has been over the last 30 years. Thirty years later, we still have Roe versus Wade on the books, and Al Franken is the senator of Minnesota. Now, tell me we've made a difference. We haven't done anything for the gospel in 30 years by that kind of involvement. You know what those millions of dollars should have been used to do? 
preach the gospel. That's what it should have been used to do. So, that's my little sidetrack for today. Second, not only is it a evidence of their fellowship with Paul, but second, their gift that they sent was also an evidence of their faith in the gospel. Look what he says in verse 15. You know, Philippians, that from the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Interesting that he brings up the subject of the gospel in connection with giving and this thank you note. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, and there he's describing not the first time he preached the gospel, but from their perspective, when the gospel first showed up on the shores in Philippi, at the doors of the homes in Philippi. That was the first preaching of the gospel. Now, there's a little bit of a chronology and a history that I want to refresh your mind, because you're not going to remember back in Acts 16, so let me go over this with you. In Acts 16 is when the gospel first came to Macedonia and Philippi. And do you remember it was the result of the Apostle Paul and Silas traveling through the uh, regions of Asia Minor, not being able to go into Asia, not being able to go into Bithynia because the Spirit of God was prohibiting him. And they showed up on the sea at Troas on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Aegean, Adriatic. It was a body of water. It was one of those two seas. And there Paul had a vision in the night in which he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come and help us. And Luke says, from that point on, we determined that the Lord wanted us to go preach the gospel in Macedonia. So they sailed across the, I believe it's the Aegean Sea, and they landed in Philippi, and there they went in on the Sabbath outside the city to a river, and there was a group of ladies praying on the Sabbath. And so Paul began to share with them the gospel, and Lydia got saved, a seller of purple fabrics, a wealthy woman. And the Apostle Paul stayed in the city of Philippi for a period of time. The next recorded convert was that slave girl who was demon-possessed. And after being irritated by the fact that he was being followed around by her for many days, the Apostle Paul finally exercised the demon. And you remember all of the people who got profit from her ability to divine the future and divine things out of people. They got mad, so they riled up all of the people in Philippi, the leaders of the city. They beat Paul, put Paul and Silas in stocks in the prison, and that's when the Philippian jailer got saved. And then the next day, when the Philippian rulers found out that they had unlawfully beaten and imprisoned a Roman citizen, they knew that their status as a Roman colony was in jeopardy, and they knew that they could get in trouble. And so they asked Paul quietly to leave. Just leave. Just please leave. Just We're sorry. Just please leave. Get out of the city. And he did. He wasn't in Philippi very long. And then he left and he went to the city of Thessalonica. And the people in Thessalonica greeted him as well as the people in Philippi did. He had a few converts in Thessalonica. And then the Jews from Thessalonica ran him out of the city and he went to Berea. And he preached in Berea. And those people were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they constantly evaluated what Paul said in the light of the Old Testament Scriptures. And then the Jews from Thessalonica found out Paul was in Berea and they came to Berea. They riled up the crowds, drove him out of Berea, and he went to Athens. And that's where he preached to the Areopagus on Mars Hill in Acts 17. And after that, he left Athens. He went to Corinth. He met, in Corinth, he met Priscilla and Aquila, and he started a church in Corinth, and he stayed there for 18 months before he left Corinth. Now, that's the history. Why do I tell you all of that? Because it's still fresh in my mind from all of the time we spent in the book of Acts, but also it's significant because the Apostle Paul, in this thank you to Philippians, mentions Thessalonica. And he says in verse 16, in Thessalonica you sent a gift for me more than once. In more than one city. Not just Thessalonica, but in more than one city you sent a gift. Now why do I tell you all of the history behind that? Because what I want you to see is that the gospel had affected, it was the first preaching of the gospel that Paul points to. He says, you Philippians know that when the gospel first came to you, from that day forward, you shared with me in my affliction. From the time, what was it that started their giving? It was the gospel. 
It was the gospel that made that change in the Philippians. And that is why I think it's significant that Paul mentions the gospel in connection with giving them thanks. It was at the preaching of the gospel when that first came to you guys. From that point forward, you shared with me in my afflictions. From that point forward, you had your faith in the gospel. And that was what? That faith in the gospel was the thing that changed their lives. I want you to notice a couple things in connection with that. Since I gave you all of that chronology, you got to understand, number one, it did not take the Philippians long before they sent Paul a gift. You see in verse 16, it says, even in Thessalonica you sent a gift. Now, how long was Paul in Philippi? Maybe a couple weeks from Acts 16. Planted the church there. A few people got saved. They baptized him. He was probably teaching for a couple weeks. But then after being beaten and, and run out of town, he was only there for a little bit. Then he went to Thessalonica. And how long was he in Thessalonica? Acts chapter 17 says he was there for three Sabbaths before he got ran out of town. It did not take long for the gospel message to affect the pocketbook of the Philippians, did it? Within a month, they had sent a gift to the Apostle Paul and began to support him regularly. It didn't take long for the gospel to affect that. Second thing I want you to notice is that the giving that you and I do as Christians is gospel-driven giving. It's not guilt-giving. It's not coerced giving. It's not have a need, plant a seed, and God will... It's not any kind of tricks or bait and switch or any catchy slogans or anything. The giving that we do is gospel-driven giving. We give because so much has been given to us and our heart has been changed. And so out of the abundance of our heart, in, in thankfulness to God for His provision and His generosity, we give out of our hearts to whatever the Lord wants us to give to. It's gospel-centered. It's not a tithe. It's not necessarily 10%. It's not a, a legalistic approach to giving. It is grace giving. It's generous giving. It's sacrificial giving. It's gospel giving. It's giving because the gospel has made a change. It didn't take the Philippians long for their newfound faith to affect their pocketbook. Listen, friends. If you and I are citizens of heaven who have been radically changed by the gospel, delivered from darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of light, and we are going to spend eternity with all of the treasures that we lay up in heaven, then the gospel, if it has affected our hearts at all, must also affect our pocketbooks. It has to. It's inevitable. And if the gospel has never made its way into my financial statements through my giving, I need to ask myself, what has the gospel impacted in my life? If it hasn't gone to the heart of my heart, which is where my money is at, if it hasn't affected that, what has it affected? Really? And can I call myself obedient to the gospel if the gospel has not in some way affected my perspective on finances and treasures and eternity and what I'm laying up for myself there? It is is evidence of their fellowship with Paul. It is evidence of their faith in the gospel. And third, it is also an evidence of their faithfulness to God. Look at verse 16. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my need. Now, it wasn't that he received more than one gift in Philippi. It's actually a weird Greek construction that means not only in Thessalonica, but after that in more than one city. We also know from the Corinthian epistles that the Philippians had supported Paul during his 18 months in Corinth. He wasn't receiving any money from the church in Corinth. We're going to look at that in a second. He didn't get any money from that church. Somebody else was providing for his needs. Who was providing for his needs? The Philippians. Beginning in Thessalonica, before he even left Macedonia... In Thessalonica, they sent a gift. And then after that, more than once, they had regularly supported the Apostle Paul. Now, here's what I find utterly stunning about this phrase. 
Nobody participated in the matter or the account of giving and receiving their financial terms, Paul says, except for you alone. Now, that's stunning. And I'm, I have one of those minds that's curious in all the little details, and I ask myself this question. Why was it only the church in Philippi that supported Paul financially? Why only that church? No other church. He went to Galatia on his first missionary journey. All the churches in Galatia, what do we know about them? The only thing we know about them is less than a year after he leaves, they're on the brink, they're teetering on the brink of total apostasy from the faith. We never have a record of any support given to Paul by the Galatian churches. And after that, there was Thessalonica, there was Berea, there was believers in uh, Athens, there was the church in Corinth, there was Ephesus, there was Colossus, there was Laodicea, there was other churches that Paul had an impact in. There was the church in Rome. He knew tons of people in Rome. And his home church in Antioch that had sent him out in Acts 13. Of all of the churches, dozens of them that knew of him and knew of his needs, not one but Philippi. Is it no wonder that this church caused him so much joy and that he was so close to this church and that this church loved Paul, I think, more than any other church loved Paul. And why do I say that? Because where their money is, what? That's where their heart was. They loved him. And man, he loved them back. This was a phenomenally rich history between the church in Philippi and Paul. And of all the churches. I think there was maybe a gift given here and there by other churches. But of all of them, who participated with Paul in the matter of giving and receiving? Philippi alone. That to me is amazing. I don't know why that is. I think what an opportunity other churches missed, huh? To make an impact for the gospel and giving to the Apostle Paul. It indicates our fellowship, it indicates their fellowship with Paul. It indicated their faith in the gospel and their faithfulness to God. Over the course of time, they gave over and over to Paul more than once. Here's a principle that should apply to our giving from verse 16. Our giving should be regular and it should be faithful. It shouldn't be sporadic. It shouldn't be erratic. I'm all for spontaneous giving. A need comes up and you, you have the means to meet that need and you give it. Without planning, without your right hand knowing what your left hand is doing, without consulting with people and having to pray about it, you just, you've got the money in your pocket, you've got the money in your account, you know when a need comes up and you can meet the need and so you give it and you do so spontaneously. I'm all for spontaneous giving, but I am not a fan of sporadic giving. Some people's giving is like a flash in the pan. They give and then months go by. Months go by and they don't give again. And then a need is made known and, oh man, I should give. And they give again. Listen, if you don't plan your giving, you'll never give. And if you do give, it'll be unfaithful, it'll be inconsistent, it'll be erratic, not reliable whatsoever, and you will find yourself giving far less than you think you're giving. Far less. So our giving should be in accordance with how the Lord has prospered us. If the Lord has prospered you, He blesses you with food every day. He blesses you with finances every week. He blesses you with a job that provides the bills every single month. And my giving should be a reflection of how God has provided for me. And that is with regularity and with faithfulness and with generosity. And so you ought to plan your giving. And it should be purposeful and it should be intentional. And you should know, I give such and such at the beginning of the month. I give such and such halfway through the month. Every time I receive a paycheck, this is how much I give out of it. And this is my offering to the Lord. And anything above that that might be spontaneous, I consider that as those things come up. But it should be intentional and it should be faithful. And if you don't plan it, it won't be faithful. It'll be erratic. Our giving is a reflection of our faithfulness to God. 
It really is a reflection of how much we thank God for what He gives us and how much we consider Him in giving back to Him. And if we don't give back to Him, it's a reflection of an, a lack of faithfulness on our behalf that we are willing to receive from Him faithfully, but we're not willing to give back to Him faithfully. Now, implied in this text, and we'll switch gears for just a second, implied in this text is something that I want to address, and I, know, I see I'm running out of time, so we're going to do this quickly. The question comes up, is it wrong for people who make their, for people who preach the gospel and are missionaries or are pastors, is it wrong for them to make a living from the gospel? Is it wrong for God's people to support those who work in gospel ministry? Some people would say, yeah, it is wrong. And you shouldn't have any paid pastors. There are whole church denominations that build their structure of eldership and their structure and philosophy of ministry around that idea of not having paid pastors. And they would say we don't shouldn't have any paid gospel workers. And if you're a gospel worker, you shouldn't get paid from what you do. Now I ask you this question, you're intelligent people. Look at the text and tell me what you see in Philippians 4. What do you see there? Paul did what? He received the gift. And he knew, and the Philippians knew, that he had needs. And they sent money to meet those needs. I see four real lines of argument. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one, Paul did that very thing. He had needs in the gospel and he received from the churches funds to support him so that he could free himself up to preach. He did it from the church in Philippi. He did it here. That's what this whole passage is about. Paul had done that. He did it himself from time to time. He received wages from other churches. Second, Paul actually instructed churches to do that. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. He says the elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. For the Scripture says that, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, the Scripture says you should not muzzle the ox. I don't like being compared to an ox. But the Scripture says you shouldn't muzzle the ox. And the Lord has said that the worker is worthy of his hire, of his wages. And he defended and he instructed the churches, provide for those among you who labor hard at preaching and teaching and those who do it well. Give them the freedom to give themselves entirely to that work because it's a blessing to the church to have somebody who can devote himself constantly to preaching and teaching and to preparing messages to that end and in shepherding the church for that end. Third, Paul defended his own right to do that. And I'm going to turn just quickly back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You can join me if you want or you can listen on. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, in explaining why he didn't take money from the Corinthian church, listen to what he says. My defense to those, verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to take along, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time as a soldier serves at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends the flock and doesn't drink the milk? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? It's written in the law of Moses, she shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Again, I don't like that. I wish you wouldn't have said that. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? No, these things are written altogether for our sake. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, right? Look at that. If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. 
Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. What's Paul saying? It's really clear. Is it bad or evil to have unpaid pastors? You can have an unpaid pastor if you want. We have two pastors that don't receive any compensation for this work here. But is it wrong to pay a pastor to do what a pastor should be doing? It's not wrong at all. Paul said, I have the right to do this. He said, but he didn't use that right to the Corinthians. You're right. He didn't insist upon that right to the Corinthians. Why is that? In order that he may be able to present the gospel without charge to them. And if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 7, you'll see what the Apostle Paul says. We robbed other churches so that we could offer the gospel to you without charge. And were we wrong in humbling ourselves like this? He's being very sarcastic to the Corinthians. And he's saying to them, we didn't insist upon our right. We have every right in the gospel to request of you and to demand of you support for what we did. But I didn't take that right. I didn't insist upon that right. In fact, I robbed others, namely the Philippians, so that I could minister to you for 18 months and never ask for a dime. Why did he not insist upon that right? He didn't want anybody calling into question his motives, but he said, I have the right to do it. I have the right to do it. So not only did Paul do it, he instructed churches to do it. He defended his own right to do it. And then how does he respond to the Philippians' gift in chapter 4? What does he say to them? Oh, you foolish Philippians! Don't you know sending me a gift? I can't take this. Why? Or it would be a violation of contentment for me to take this. I can't take your gifts. Don't you know? Haven't I told you enough times? You never pay a pastor. You never pay a missionary. You never pay anybody in gospel work. Does Paul say that? What does he say? Thank you. And what you did, verse 18, was pleasing to God, an acceptable aroma, a wonderful sacrifice. And he commends them for it. He doesn't reprove them. He doesn't reject it. He doesn't refuse it. He doesn't send it back. He receives it with thanksgiving. And he says to them, thank you for what you did. So now I ask you, is it wrong to pay a pastor to do a pastor's work? Or a missionary? Or anybody who works in gospel ministry? Is it wrong for them to expect a salary to do that? It's not wrong whatsoever. I understand many of you may have come from backgrounds where that's considered the biggest evil in the world. I seem to be running into more and more people who believe that. And they do so with pride. It's an article of pride for some people. Oh, no, no, no. We don't, we don't pay our pastors. No, we don't, we don't believe in paid pastors. Oh, great. So you like muzzle and the ox? Not giving the worker his worthy dues? How will you explain that on Judgment Day? I don't know where some of these silly notions creep into evangelical Christianity. But let me just say this, and this may be too brash. Even a cursory reading of the text we just looked at would be enough to put that to rest forever. It's just silliness is what it is. It's silliness. So, giving is a personal involvement. It's an evidence of our fellowship with one another. It's an evidence of our faith in the gospel. And it is an evidence of our faithfulness to God. And now you can use each one of those three points and ask yourself a question. If I were to judge my own fellowship with others based upon my giving, what would it say of my fellowshipping? Am I actually fellowshipping with anybody or any organization or any ministry in the gospel through my giving? Second, what does it say about my faith in the gospel? Has the gospel, which I say has impacted my heart, ever touched my checkbook, my pocketbook or not? And third, what does it say about my faithfulness? If I were to judge my faithfulness to God based upon my faithfulness in giving back to God, what would my faithfulness to God look like? Let's bow our heads in prayer together. Father, we do thank you for the grace that you, the Lord Jesus Christ, became rich or became poor, left all the riches of heaven and gave up all of that so that through that poverty we might be made rich. We thank you for your indescribable gift to us. And we pray, O oh God, that our response to you through our giving 
through our sacrifice, through our service, may be in accordance with that which we have been given. In order that you might be glorified through us and through our gifts to you, it is our joy and it is a blessing to be able to sacrifice for the gospel's sake, to be able to give to one another, to be able to give to you. And Lord, we look to you as the giver of every good gift and we thank you for the blessings that you bestow upon us. May we be faithful and regular stewards of those blessings to your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.